Good morning. My name is Jesse, and I'm the small groups and outreach pastor here at Waterstone. And this morning, we're in the second week of a, of a series on the seven deadly sins. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon, Larry, Larry laid the foundation of this sermon series of, of what exactly are these seven deadly sins. He defined sin as having no awe or worship for God. And then he also talked about where, where did these seven deadly sins come from? You don't find a list of these seven deadly sins in the Bible, so where does it come from? And I'm a history buff, so, so I loved listening to, to how these, these men and women back in the third century, they, they wanted to live holy lives devoted to God. And so they went out into the wilderness, and, and, and they started to categorize these different sins of, of this is where all of our sins come from. This is where we don't give awe to God where he deserves it. And so that's where these seven deadly sins have come from, and they've been incredibly helpful throughout church history in, in, in believers trying to live holy lives. And for those of you here thinking, oh great, I showed up on a weekend that they're talking about sin. Don't worry. Larry also explained last week that, that this sermon series, we're not here to, to try to beat anyone up. That, that, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of us going through this, this series on the seven deadly sins, the, the first reason why we're doing it is, is to make sin worse to us. Because sin is, is incredibly destructive in our own lives and in the lives of the people that we love. And so, first of all, we, we, we need to, to see sin rightly. We need to see it in, in all of its terribleness in order to acknowledge that. But then, secondly, we're doing this series is for Jesus to become better for us. Because when we see this sin rightly, we understand that, that we need a great Savior. And so, Jesus has saved us and redeemed us and has called us into a new life and a new identity. And so that's what this sermon series is all about. It's making sin worse to us and making Jesus greater. And I think those, those are two things that we can all agree that, that we need a little bit more of in our life. And so this morning I, I, I get to, to talk to you about, about the, the deadly sin of pride, of being self-focused. And I want to bring you in a little bit on, on my sermon preparation over the last couple weeks. And, and, and so as I've been preparing about the sermon of, of the dangers of, of being self-centered, and, and all of a sudden I've, I've had these thoughts rise to the surface of my mind as I've been preparing. I, I, I want Nick and Larry to think that this is a good sermon. I want them to think that I'm a really good preacher. And I want the elder board to think that I'm a good preacher. And, and I want them to invite me back up here. And, and I even want, I want you all to think that, I'm a, that this was a good sermon and, and that I'm a good preacher. And, and then I was even thinking, you know, it's been a little while since I've had a haircut. Is, is my hair starting to get too long? Do, do, I, do I need to go get it trimmed before I stand up in front of all of those people? Yeah, thank you, Hannah. And so, yeah, all of these self-centered thoughts have, have been rising to the surface as, as I've been preparing the sermon on, on the dangers of being self-centered. And so know that, know that this sermon is as much for me as it is for you. And so I hope that, that you take something away from this this morning. 
this morning, the passage that we're in is, is in Daniel chapter 4, and, and it's a little bit of an odd passage, and, and I want to give a little bit of background story of, of the book of Daniel, so that way we get a little bit of context of, of what's going on. So, for the last several hundred years, Israel split into two countries. It's Israel up in the northern kingdom, and then Judah in the southern kingdom. And so Judah has, has kind of been alternating back and forth, depending on the king, of, of whether or not they're following their covenant relationship with God. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they ignore God. And so God keeps on sending these prophets to both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And he keeps on saying, follow me, be in relationship with me. But they keep on ignoring God. They keep on saying, no thanks, we want to do it our own way. And so God, he, he sends the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they take over the kingdom of Judah. They, they take over Jerusalem, and, and, and what they do is actually really pretty genius. They, they, they take all of, of the young elite men and women from Judah, and, and they ship them off to Babylon, the, the capital city of of the Babylonian Empire, and, and that's where, where they, they bring up these young elite in the Babylonian way of life. It's really a genius way to assimilate a conquered country into your own, into your own way of thinking and living. And so Daniel and his friends, they, they are these young elite from Judah that, that have been, been taken out of their country and they've been brought to this foreign capital to be brought up by their captives. But, but Daniel, in the first couple chapters, he, he starts to rise in the ranks of King Nebuchadnezzar's men, and, and he actually ends up being the chief wise man for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so that's kind of the, the setup for where this story starts. In the beginning of chapter 4, it, it's a little bit odd. King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he starts out and he, and he has this bizarre and strange and disturbing dream. And, and so he gets really concerned about it, and so he gathers all of his wise men together, and he says, can one of you guys interpret this for me? I don't know what this dream means, and it's scaring me. But none of Nebuchadnezzar's men can interpret his dream. And then it's a little bit odd, but, but Daniel comes in a little bit later than the rest of the wise men, even though he's the head wise man, so I'm not sure why he's late. But he shows up late, and Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, thank you, thank you. Daniel, you've, you've interpreted dreams for me in the past that no one else has been able to interpret. So, so Daniel, will you interpret this dream for me? And so he lays out his dream for Daniel. And so Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it, it, it starts with this, this massive tree that can be seen throughout all of the earth. And all the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, they, they find shelter underneath that tree. And, and, and the tree feeds all the birds and the animals. And so it's kind of this, this beautiful picture. But then an angel comes out of heaven and, and the angel calls out, cut down the tree and leave its stump and bind its stump in iron. And then the angel kind of switches metaphors, and the angel says, and give him a mind like a beast, and send him out and make him live among the beasts for seven years. And then the angel at the very end of the story gives a clue of what I think this story is all about. He says, 
Do we have that first slide? He said, the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. And so Daniel at first doesn't necessarily, he's a little uncomfortable interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I wonder if part of it is sometimes messengers with with bad news to powerful people, things don't go well for them. But anyways, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he continues to encourage Daniel and he says, please tell me what this dream means. And so Daniel relents and he interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. So that big tree that, that feeds and shelters all of the animals, that tree is King Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom is, is over all of the known world. And so everyone finds a shelter under his kingdom and everyone is given sustenance from him. But the angel who comes down out of heaven and says to cut down the tree, to give it a mind like a beast and to send it out into the wilderness for seven years, that is God's decree, his discipline of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be given the mind of a beast and he is going to be sent out into the wilderness for seven years. But there's hope. The fact that the tree stump is left and the fact that it's bound in iron daniel says that that as soon as you acknowledge that god is sovereign that he is the one who is in control you're going to regain your sanity and you're going to regain your kingdom and at the end of the interpretation daniel gives a piece of advice to nebuchadnezzar repent turn back daniel has this to says to to say to Nebuchadnezzar, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And maybe that then your prosperity will continue. And this is what always, prophecy is always about. It's always saying you can avoid this fate. If you just turn away and if you come back to God and, and you act justly and you acknowledge and worship God this does not have to happen to you always prophecy of doom and gloom in the Bible is always a grace and mercy from God because he's giving you he's giving you a warning and he's giving you time to turn back in order that he might be graceful and merciful to us an example so Jonah the prophet he he gives one of arguably the worst sermons ever given so he walks in, into the wicked city of Nineveh, and, and, and his entire sermon is, y'all are going to be destroyed in 40 days. And that's it. I mean, it, it definitely catches your attention, but it's not exactly seeker-friendly. It doesn't end on a, on a grace note. Um, yeah, it, it just isn't, you know, it, it doesn't feel good. And so, so, so Jonah gives this sermon, and... and And that's just the thing, though. The Ninevites, they actually responded. They start mourning and weeping over their sin and their wickedness. And they they start to change their ways. And so God relents in his discipline and his judgment on Nineveh. He has mercy on them. And Jonah, actually, he, he gets upset. He starts to get upset at God because, because he hates the Ninevites. And, and he wants God to destroy them. 
And he knew that if he went and he preached this message, and if they repented, that God was going to be merciful and gracious to them. And so that's always what prophecy in the Bible is about. It is always a grace and a mercy of, of God saying, come back to me in order that, that I don't need, that I can have mercy and grace upon you. And so, so God and Daniel have, have thrown this lifeline to Nebuchadnezzar. He can avoid this fate. But the very next verse says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. It fast forwards about a year, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is, is up on the roof of his palace, and, and this is what he says. He said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built? as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar has not repented. He has not admitted that God is the one who is in control, or he, and he's not kind to the oppressed. He is worshiping himself. He's worshiping his accomplishments, his successes, his own glory. And so he has ignored the mercy and the grace of God. And so, in fulfillment, Daniel 4.33 says, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. God drew a very distinct line in the sand. And he said, if you cross this line, this discipline will come upon you. But if, but if you repent, if you, if you cross back over it, it, it won't. And he made it very clear to Nebuchadnezzar what the consequence would be for crossing that line. But, and gave Nebuchadnezzar a year to step back across that line. But instead, Nebuchadnezzar continues to worship himself. And so God lets the discipline fall upon Nebuchadnezzar. But also in fulfillment of what had been said, seven years later, Nebuchadnezzar, he lifts his eyes unto heaven and immediately his sanity is restored to him. And he starts worshiping God and, and, and his kingdom is also restored to him. And so at the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar, he says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. He's no longer worshiping himself, his successes, his accomplishments, his own glory. But he's worshiping God. But why is he worshiping God? He continues on, because everything he, God, does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And now that is an incredible statement. Here is the king of the greatest kingdom in all of the world. And he is freely admitting that, that he is not in the least bit control. That God is the one who is completely in control in this story. Now, we, we may be tempted to think that, God, you're... Your discipline of Nebuchadnezzar is, is kind of heavy-handed, isn't it? Because we don't really think that pride is that big of a deal. Pride doesn't really hurt anyone, does it? I mean, and, and really, I mean, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he's a king. 
And not only is he a king, he's, he's the king of the greatest kingdom. How, how can he not be proud? And, and he's not only the king of the greatest kingdom, but, but he's, also, he's also built the Babylonian Hanging Gardens, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. How can Nebuchadnezzar not be proud? And so, so we, we oftentimes, we, we think that God is heavy-handed. But that's because we ignore the reality and the depth of the destruction of pride. Pride is incredibly insidious, and it's incredibly destructive. Throughout church history, from the Desert Fathers to Augustine to Martin Luther today, pride is considered to be the root sin. All of the rest of the six deadly sins, they, they all find their start in pride. Larry defined sin as having no awe for God. And that is exactly what pride is. It's, it's having no awe for God. Martin Luther and Augustine, two of the greatest theological minds to ever walk this earth, they define sin as, as humanity's inward curve in upon itself. And so pride is awe for self rather than awe for God. Michael Mangus, in his book, Signature Sin says the, elementary, the elemental struggle of pride is submitting to God's definition of reality rather than your own. When we have a lack of awe for God and, and we're inwardly curved in upon ourselves, we all of a sudden no longer want to hear God's definition of reality, but, but, but we want in our own distorted version of reality. Pride is the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The serpent in Genesis 3, 5 says, For God knows that when you eat from it, the, 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 the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what pride is. It's wanting to be God, to replace God. Now, some of you might be thinking, Jesse, you don't need to bring me to the psych ward this morning. I, I don't actually claim to be God. But I think, I think we might not necessarily be bold enough to say I'm, I should be God and God shouldn't. But I think in more subtle ways, we say that. We, we make those claims. Augustine, back in the 5th century, he, he started to subcategorize the sin of pride. And, and so he started looking at, at what are the different ways that, that pride starts to come out. And, and I think as we look into this, we're, we're going to see how, how we distort reality away from, from what God says reality is to our own version of reality. And so check these out and see if any of these might apply to you. The first is distrust, which involves the rejection of God's will in favor of one's own will. This sin desires to know the future and is unwilling to accept the unknown. This is where, where we're, we're, we're not really sure that God is good and that God is actually for us. And so we, we, we think that God is withholding something from us that we need, and so we need to go out and take it for ourselves. The next is vanity, 
which is an inordinate focus through time, money, or other resources on one's image. It is an attempt to draw attention to oneself. And so this is kind of where, where we, 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 wanna, we only want to buy the certain brand clothes in the most recent styles. It's, it's owning the right car and living in the right neighborhood. And, and this is also where, where we carefully curate our, our, our photos that we put up on social media so that way, you know, other people think that, that you know, Martha Stewart should be following me on Pinterest and, and not the other way around. The next is arrogance, which is a demanding and overbearing and opinionated form of pride. This is the one that really bothers us and other people. This is the people that, that they offer unsolicited advice in the strongest possible terms. They're, they think of themselves as the most brilliant person on earth, and, and theirs is the only right way to do things, and, and your way is always the wrong way to do things. The next is snobbery, which is pride over race, family, class, or other characteristics that artificially create a sense of superiority. Our country, since its very inception, we've wrestled with the sin of racism. And I think we've made a lot of progress in, in that realm, but I think that there's a lot of progress still to be made. And, and a place that I've seen snobbery in my own life is, is my inordinate value on education. I found myself looking down on other people if they did not achieve the level of education that I thought they ought to have achieved. Like having a slip of paper with a degree on it gave someone a person, gave a person value. The next is irreverence, which involves neglect of worship and reverence for God. So this is just the cynical person towards God who just takes God as a, as, as a big joke and doesn't take God seriously. The next is disobedience, which shows itself in disregarding God's will and moral laws. And so this is, this is kind of like, like when a parent tells their son to not eat any more cookies from the cookie jar, and the son locks eyes with the parents and reaches into the cookie jar, still locking eyes with the parent, stuffs as much of that cookie into their mouth as they possibly can. But isn't that what we do with sin sometimes? Sometimes even in the act of sinning and doing something against God's will, we, we, we acknowledge to God that this is a sin, but, but I'm going to do it anyways, because I want to do it. And the last one, is impenitence. This is where, where we refuse to acknowledge one's sin or admit that one has wronged another. This is where we trivialize or rationalize our sin, and, and, and it's not really my fault that I did that. It, they made me do it. Or have you ever been in an argument where, where they gave, the other person gave you that, that false apology? I'm sorry you feel that way. They're not actually apologizing for anything that they've done. They're, they're actually just apologizing on your behalf for the way that you responded. And so they're taking no responsibility for it. So as we take a look at all of these categories of pride, I, I, I think we can see that all of these apply to King Nebuchadnezzar. He has distrust and is disobedient of God by not acknowledging that God is actually 
sovereign and in control. He is vain and arrogant by, by focusing in on his accomplishments, his successes, his majesty. And he's irreverent and impenitent when, when God sends him this dream and, and Daniel to interpret the dream and, and still Nebuchadnezzar ignores God and does what he wants. And so similarly in our own lives, I, I think oftentimes our sin isn't, isn't found in just one of these small little categories, but, but oftentimes it's, it's interwoven together like a spider web. And one of the sticky webs that we oftentimes find ourselves in is, is that we as a society, we, we idolize success and accomplishment in self-made men and women. Oftentimes our, our heroes and, and the stories that we tell our children about individuals are, are, are people that, that have risen up to the top of their fields and people that have gone from rags to riches. And now Waterstone, Waterstone is full of incredibly accomplished and successful people. And that is a wonderful thing. There is nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But I wonder, do we ever slip into the mindset of King Nebuchadnezzar? Of look what I have built. Look what I have accomplished. Look at the career that, that I have made and for my own glory. Nebuchadnezzar's entire identity is wrapped around his accomplishments and his successes. And he is not able to acknowledge that God is the one who is in control because if he did, then, then he would have to give up a piece of that. And I wonder, do we do the same? Do we center our identities on, on our successes and our accomplishments? And are we able to admit that God has been generous to us? And so oftentimes we, we wrap our identities around what we have done. But, but not only that, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he has this to say. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitively only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud and the pleasure of being above the rest. And so oftentimes, we center our identities on our accomplishments and our successes. And, and, and so we want to set ourselves up as above the rest. But God, he repeatedly reminded Nebuchadnezzar back in the book of Daniel, he says, The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And he gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, I don't want to take away anything from, from the incredible hard work that you have put in, into your career, or, or the incredible amount of, of wise decisions that you've made along the way. But where has God been generous to you? 
What are the natural talents and abilities and, and giftings that he's given you? Who are the people in your life that he's given to you? Your, your parents, your spouse, your teachers, your bosses, your coworkers, your friends. Who are the people that, that have pushed you forward along the way and made you into who you are? Who has God given you? And what about, what are the breaks that you've caught in life where, where, where things hung in the balance and it could have gone one of two ways, but it fell towards the way that worked best for you? What are the ways that, that God has been generous to you? It's hard to be competitive, and it's hard to wrap our identities around our success and our accomplishments when we humbly admit that God has been generous to us. A second sticky web that we oftentimes find ourselves in, and, and this is in, especially insidious and dangerous for Christians, is, is religious pride. And now, I haven't seen a whole lot of that here at Waterstone, but, but I, I, I think this is, this is a danger for, for any believer or Christian that, that is trying to restrain sin and living a holy life. And, and as you start to, to get a little bit of progress in restraining the sin, at, at least outwardly, you start to, to feel a little puffed up. I am pretty good. I am pretty righteous. And all of a sudden, we, we, we take a small step and, and we start to think, you know, God, you, you owe me for how righteous and good I am. And then we might take another small step and, and start to think, you know, God, thanks for, for Jesus, but, but I don't really need him to save me because I'm, I'm pretty good. I'll just save myself. This is the sin of the Pharisee who, in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, where, where the Pharisee, he, he stands on the Temple Mount and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like those sinners, like those adulterers and those thieves and, and, and that, that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I tithe everything that I earn. Look what I've done for you, God. And I think this, this form of pride, it, it can hide underneath the surface for a long time, but, it, but I think it starts to pop up its, its ugly head when life starts to become a little bit more bumpy, when life starts to go a way that you didn't think it should, when you lose that job that you were so reliant upon, when, when the test result comes back and, and it's positive and you have cancer. And all of a sudden, in, in your prayer, you, you start saying to God, God, I, I go to church every week. I serve in children's ministry once a month, and, and we host small group at our house. God, you owe me for life to be better. It's also interesting to know, talking to, to non-believers about what did they think Christianity is all about. And oftentimes, their answer is, Christianity is all about just going to heaven. But how does a Christian go to heaven? And, and their response is usually, well, it's the great cosmic scale. It's by doing more good things than bad things. In our religious pride, we've, we've miscommunicated the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And we've, we've, we've communicated through our pride that, that the way to be in relationship with God is by doing enough good things and by just avoiding doing bad things. But that isn't the case at all. 
there's no way that we can do enough good things to be in relationship with God. There's no way that we can earn that. Martin Luther, he was a monk and, and he was living in a monastery and, and he had this seared he had this seared conscience, and, and so he kept on going to confession and, and, and confessing all these minute sins, and, and his confessor just got annoyed with him. And his confessor told him, Luther, don't, don't come back here until you go out and commit a real sin. Because Luther kept on com- confessing all these little tiny things. How much trouble could Luther have gotten in? He was a monk living in a monastery studying scripture all day long. I mean, seriously, what what was he doing that he was confessing about? But Luther knew that even his going to confession and even his, his good deeds were tainted by his inward curve in upon himself. He was doing things for self-serving reasons. And so even our, even our good deeds oftentimes are self-serving. I like to serve, but I also, in my vain pride, like other people to see me serving. And I like them to acknowledge my service. So what do we do? What do we do about this poison of pride. It, it, it keeps on popping up and it, and it just feels like it's everywhere. And so our antidote this morning is humility. Now I'm not talking about that false humility where, where, where some people have taught you that, that you just need to beat yourself up and break yourself so you think you're, you're nothing and that you have no talent and that you have no value. But that isn't what humility is all about. True humility is rooted in the gospel. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says, how can we renounce the two extremes of self-hatred and self-love and neither despise nor flatter ourselves? The cross of Christ supplies the answer, for it calls us both to self-denial and to self-affirmation. True gospel humility is is letting God define who we are in his reality and and not allowing our own distorted versions of reality concerning us overtake it. And so we submit to God's definition of reality concerning us. And to do that, we need to contemplate the cross. And so when we first start to contemplate the cross, the, the, the cross brings us incredibly low. Our sin is awful. Oftentimes we trivialize our sin and, and we think, oh, it, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Everyone else is, is doing it. How big of a deal could it be? But our sin is more terrible than we can possibly bear or imagine. Romans says the wages of sin is death. And you and I, we cannot pay that price ourselves. And so Jesus had to come and become fully human, and he had to die on our behalf because we could not do it. So first, when we contemplate the cross, 
it brings us incredibly low. But as we continue to contemplate the cross, the cross raises us out of the grave. Jesus' death and resurrection is the climax of the greatest rescue story the world has ever known. And this was a costly rescue mission. Jesus had to give his own life. God had to die. And you don't go on a costly rescue mission unless you value what you're rescuing. Believer, do you know that God values you? Adele Calhoun, in her book, Spiritual Discipline, says, Humility stems from having someone besides yourself as the center of your attention. Apprentices to Jesus are chosen, loved, appreciated, and important to the creator of the universe. The Holy Spirit inhabits them. They are free to be who they are, no more and no less. Regardless of how little or how much people know who he or she is, the humble person is truly free. And because the humble are free, they don't think less of themselves. They think of themselves less. And so, so when we contemplate the cross, we, we see that, that God knows our deepest, darkest sins. He knows it more intimately than we do. And yet, even knowing our deepest, darkest sins, God said, I, I still value them enough. I want them. And I, and I choose you. And so he, he reached into this world and he grabbed us and he called us by name. And he said, I want you to be a part of my family. I want you to be citizens of my kingdom. And so being firmly rooted in that because, because there's nothing that can come out of us that Jesus is going to disown us over. He knows everything that we've done wrong already and he still chose us. And so being firmly rooted in that identity, we, we no longer need to center our identities around our successes and our accomplishments. We no longer need to root our identity on, on what other people say about us. And we even no longer need to, to base our identity on what we think about ourselves. Because the only one who matters is, is what God says about us. Because he knows what true reality is. And he is the one that has said that you are my family and you are one of my citizens. And so all of a sudden being firmly rooted in our identities in Christ, we are able to celebrate other people's successes freely without feeling that twinge of competitiveness. We are able to, to give up our rights in order to serve and love other people because we know who we are in Christ. We are able to love with abandon because we know that God values us. And so true humility comes through us, through gospel-centeredness. And so, a couple practices of the humble heart that I want to leave you with. The first of which is prayer. And this is where the, the humble person, they, they pray and ask God, remove this heart that is so self-focusing and give me a heart that is truly humble. 
that knows both my, both my, my deepest, darkest, and, and knows my, the beauty of me and the value of me. And so, Father, remove this heart of pride and give me a heart of humility. The second practice is refraining from image management. And so this is, this last week, I, I, I tried to be cognizant of, of, of how do I insert myself into conversations to, to kind of bump myself up in other people's opinions. How do I want people to know me? I want them to think that I'm smart and intelligent and witty. And so, and so I insert myself in conversations to build myself up. But, but what if the hu- humble person, they, they no longer need to insert themselves both in conversation and also on, on social media, and, and we no longer need to manage our own image because, because we're so secure in who we are in Christ. The third is focusing on others in conversations and not on ourselves. C.S. Lewis said that, that if you meet a truly humble person, that you won't go away thinking, oh, that person was really humble. You'll walk away thinking, that person really cared about who I am and my family and what I'm about. And they're incredibly joyful and secure in themselves. The fourth practice of the humble heart is giving thanks and worship to God. I think as Billy said earlier this morning, that, that, that when we give awe, to God, when we worship God, how, how can we be, be filling ourselves with awe? How can we be focused in on ourselves? And, and so do we spend time giving thanks to God for all that he has been generous to us with, for the generosity of him and his gospel and the way that he died for us? And so this morning, I, I want to end with, with a prayer of confession of our pride and, and a prayer for God to give us a humble heart So will you read this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I confess that my natural tendency is towards pride in its many guises and disguises. I have always wanted to show that I am self-assured and self-confident in front of other people. And yet I now begin to realize that I am in fact displaying pride in the form of selfishness and self-indulgence. Forgive me, Lord, for I now realize that I have been relying on myself for all I need instead of trusting my life into your hands. Lord, I see now that I have been feeding my old sin nature instead of allowing my new life in Christ to grow. A wonderful new nature which you gave me the moment I trusted you as Lord of my life. Lord, I live in this mortal body and have a fallible mind, but I desire in your strength to be clothed in humility and grace, which I now see only comes from you. Change me, Lord, and teach me to submit to your working in my life. Help me, I pray, to clothe myself in humility and truth by allowing the Holy Spirit to work in me so deeply that the people will see Jesus in my life and not the old prideful person I used to be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.